after the invasion of Ukraine, Europeans are now rethinking their relationship with Russia and its dependence on Russian energy. The member states have expressed a strong desire to reduce their dependence on Russian energy. Uh, and the EU is working on a plan to cut dependency on Russian gas by two-thirds by the end of 2022, with a longer-term goal of having ended imports of Russian energy by 2030. So Europe wants to get out of Russian energy, but Russia is not likely to just do nothing. They might also disrupt or cut off the flow of gas. Yesterday, Germany triggered an emergency plan to manage gas supplies in case of scarcity and cutoffs. So in this podcast, we will discuss the European energy situation. We'll we will touch on three issues. First, can Europe reduce its dependency on Russian gas? And what is the a realistic roadmap? Secondly, how do uh, Russians view this situation? What will they do? And thirdly, is of course, here, since we are here in Norway, what can Norway do? Uh, another very important supplier of energy to Europe in order to ease this uh, squeeze and ease the transition. So welcome to this uh, NUPI podcast, The World Stage. My name is Ulf Sverdrup and I will be the host of today's episode. And this podcast is also part of NUPI's Norway uh, Europe 2030 project. To discuss these important issues on European energy, I have with me two great guests. First, uh, Jaran Rista, uh, who is the CEO and the founder of Rista Energy, a world-leading independent energy research and business intelligence company. Jaran knows the energy industry very well, uh, and I know of no better person, actually, to answer these questions. So it's great to have you with us today. And uh, the other person, my colleague, is uh, my colleague, uh, professor, research professor Jakob Gonsimirski, who has worked a lot on energy policy in Europe and also an expert on Russian energy policy and how uh, Russia has also used energy as a foreign policy instrument. He will reflect a bit on what this transition will look, on, uh, look like from Moscow. So welcome to the two of you. Great to have you here. So let's get started. Jaran. Yes. Let's start with the facts. How yeah. dependent are Europe on Russian energy? Yes, uh, Europe is delivering about 30% of the energy to Europe. Uh, oh, sorry, of the natural gas yeah. to Europe. Yeah. So 155 out of, yes, uh, 525 uh, approximately. So meaning that, and some countries are very dependent. They have all their gas from Russia. Uh, some countries in the East Europe. Uh, Germany is the largest taker. They take about one third of the total gas. So they... And this is the most significant economy that really will be hurted by uh, not having access to Russian gas. Uh, but uh, this is what we will discuss. I think there are ways out of the dependency of Russian gas. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So, so uh, Europe is very dependent on Russian gas, but some countries are more dependent than others. Yeah. And of course, Germany is the most important. And... Uh, uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz recently said that making Germany independent from Russian gas is a big but solvable task. Yes. It's obviously expensive. Mm. What will it take yes. for Germany in particular? I guess we will concentrate a bit today on Germany. Yes. No. Yeah. You, you, you have uh, different options uh, and you have to use all of them. Uh, the most important thing is to import more LNG more floating uh, li liquefied natural gas. Uh, 
we have quite many terminals to receive this kind of gas to Europe, and we didn't even we were not even close to use all of this capacity last year. So we can easily increase this by 50 BCM, which is about one third of the of the gas we are getting from Russia. That is within the current capacity. Uh, un unutilized capacity. If you just have full speed of having all of these terminals uh, at 100% capacity. Uh, but Germany, they don't have any LNG facilities. No, but, but they are building a but few. Yes, and they are linked to the European gas network. So if this gas is coming into uh, Netherlands, Belgium, France, you know, uh, not Spain. Sp Spain is isolated and they're the most dependent on LNG. But uh, to all the other continental European countries, uh, this will come into the same gas market. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so where will this LNG come from then? Yes. Um, just the LNG, uh, the sourcing of that is actually not the issue. You have many sources. You have Africa, you have uh, US is the most important. You also have Qatar. Uh, so this is a global market. So the bottleneck will be the import facilities to Europe. Uh, but you have to uh, incentivize the sellers of LNG to go to Europe rather than to Asia. And normally every year uh, the Asian prices are much higher. So people, uh, the, the sellers of, of uh, LNG will, will prefer to go to Asia. But this year we have seen clearly higher prices in Europe and we are seeing loads actually being turning a U-turn in the middle of Atlantic to go back to to the Atlantic uh, Northern Atlantic Basin and back to Europe. So it is a lot of uh, LNG available globally. But as I said, the, what we really need to focus on is de-bottlenecking of import facilities in Europe. And there are some opportunities to do that. So not only to get 50 BCM more than last year, but maybe up to 70. And we are looking at the details now of how this can be done. And you have some floating uh, uh, storage uh, and regas units that could be utilized, even in Northern Europe. Then you need a special technology, which is so-called closed loop because it's cold water. Uh, so many of the units that are existing globally cannot be used, but a few of them can actually be used. And we are actually now talking to some of these companies that have access to this unit to see if we can get that. And at best, this can be mobilized within six to nine months. Okay, so uh, there will be a few numbers here. Uh, we yeah. just uh, warn, uh, warn the listeners, but the, I think it's important because Jaran is very much an expert. He knows everything about the energy system, the production, and the flow of energy, and actually that's what matters at the end of the day. So, so the magic number, if you yes. recap a bit, is 150 yeah. because yeah. that's what Russia is providing today. Yes. So, and then you said 50 today could be covered by LNG. Yeah, easily by easily. existing capacity. So that means that we lack 100. Yes. Uh, and then you said we can step up with additional LNG Maybe within the six yeah. to nine months. Or, ten, or to 10 to 20. Right. So, yeah. But we still lack half yes. and or then, more than that. We lack and then Norway delivered last year 115. But the peak year in 2017, we delivered 125. So this has proved that Norway, at least from an infrastructure point of view, has the capacity to export 125. Okay, exactly. We will return a bit to, to, to Norway. Yeah. But, but uh, just to clarify, because what you said is 
initially, Harry Anran, is that yes, it is possible, yeah. but we we'll need to have all kinds of solutions. Yeah. And if I understand you correctly, then LNG is then the most important, That's the right. biggest, the most significant. And then all the other elements will be just small stepwise, one BCM here, a few here. Yeah, few ten, there. 10 here and 10 there. Yeah. And mm. what will this take? Um, can you build an LNG <laughs> facility in uh, just a few months? No, you cannot. Uh, but uh, then you need several years. But you can, if you have already existing one like i mentioned that is on ships that can be moved then you can do it maybe within six six to nine months so this is the fastest and that's some options as i said for uh, for northern europe at least one named unit we know about and we see also maybe two units that can be uh, taken in in this very southern part of europe because they have another technology that needs warmer water so 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 they can take maybe at best uh, 20 bcm more uh, you have not touched upon renewables yet. No. So what, what is the role of renewables in this transition? Yes, I, I, I think, you know, this 2022 and with this, this uh, invasion, etc., is really the turning point, I think, for the green shift, uh, accelerating it overall. Because suddenly, not only sustainability and affordability, but also energy security, the energy trilemma, those three elements I mentioned, are certainly a new argument for the green shift, because renewables are very often local, it's within domestic borders, within domestic control. So uh, this will accelerate the renewable uh, development. And we already see that, um, for example, um, per permitting and commissioning of, uh, uh, of new licensing rounds, etc., are going faster. So, but within 2022, you can hardly do much because it takes at least two to three years to build a new uh, renewable uh, energy facility. So the impact of that is mostly down the road, you know, in 2024, tw five and six. And then I think we will see much faster ramp up in 24, five and six than we would have seen without mm. this situation. So, so what we are looking at is basically a massive transition of the European energy system. Yes. And uh, this, we knew that this would happen somehow in the distant future. Yeah. But now it's happening at a more rapid s speed. It is. It, it will take huge infrastructure investments, digitalization, interconnectors. Yes. Uh, but w what will this mean for price? Yes. Uh, so if you if you look at so we will have a squeeze. You indicate there will be a squeeze in European energy market for several years mm -hmm. ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, longer term, long term, renewable energy can provide cheaper energy than today. And actually, even if, if you think that the weather is, is not, things, not something to rely on, you can actually rely on it if you just have prepared uh, for storage in, in the right manner. Statistically, you, you can then trust both in the wind and in the, in the solar because these patterns are the same every year. Uh, they're varying and are different, but, but uh, overall production is, is quite similar. So uh, renewable uh, energy in the 2040s and 50s, to look far into the future, will provide cheaper energy than we have today from the fossil fuel. Mm. Uh, and uh, so that's the affordability uh, part of it. The sustainability is, is obvious, but also now the new argument with, with security, which is, as I said, a completely uh, new argument that people haven't really uh, spent too much attention on 
previously, but, but this is really now on the agenda. Okay, a final co uh, question to you, and then I'll bring in uh, Jakob. Uh, so, so, so far we have discussed this scenario of Europe wanting to get out of Russian gas yeah. or energy. Uh, and that would be kind of still very risky. It would be a chaotic uh, process. But imagine if Russia cuts Europe off. Yeah. W what, w will that change anything to this scenario? I mean, uh, the consequences are the same. You know, we, you need to do the same, uh, find alternative sources of, of uh, energy. So uh, we think that both of those uh, scenarios are almost symmetrical, that that either uh, due to keep the 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 the, the, the morale or, or the uh, the imperative from uh, the democracy you know to, to say that we will don't want to take russian gas or if russia cut us off we will have the same consequence but i i i a few points i haven't mentioned yet uh, uh, you have a lot of depleted gas fields in europe because they were too low pressure to produce uh, and uh, they were shut in many years ago because they were not competitive. With the extremely high gas prices we see now, you can actually reopen many of these depleted gas fields. And there's a few new technologies uh, coming, uh, one called dump flooding, but also some other technologies that will allow these depleted gas fields to have less uh, pressure on the processing facility to, to get the gas up. So this is also some options within fairly short time to, to revitalize uh, some of these uh, European gas fields. And then... So how much yeah. would it depleted add then? May, may I, it's very uncertain, but let, let me say between 5 and 15. Okay, uh, so uh, still yeah. quite significant yeah. then. Yeah. And then uh, you have uh, demand destruction <laughs> that you don't need the gas, either because you are replacing it from other uh, um, producers in the power sector, or for, because you are not using it in the industry. And for example, to produce ammonia, you need a lot of gas. And with the current gas prices in Europe, it's not a business case anymore to produce ammonia. So we're already seeing that this, uh, this industrial production is going to America, that has much cheaper gas still, or to Asia, you know, to China and other, uh, and other Asian nations. So this will take away maybe 25 to 30. Uh, BCM. You, and this is market forces will basically do this because you don't want to produce uh, these um, commodities with, with losses. Uh, and, but on the power sector, uh, many have mentioned that we have much more capacity in the coal-fired power plants, and that's right. But 80% last year of the European import of coal was from Russia. So it doesn't help to stop <laughs> Russian gas if you're still increasing Russian coal in import. And it's a big competition of, of, of getting the coal on the global market. Colombia, Australian uh, coal uh, has extremely high prices. So that is almost as difficult as getting, uh, or more difficult than, than to get sufficient gas. So, so I think that is not that easy option that I've seen some, some other has mentioned, just to, to increase the coal side. But still, uh, you, and you have some uh, shut-ins also on other power plants like nuclear plants. Um, so uh, you can bring some back, but it's not a big potential. But the sum of everything I said now is getting quite close to these uh, additional 100 we need. Uh, and with Russian gas for another two months, we could actually manage without for the rest of the uh, year uh, from June 
Okay. You know, so yeah. just let 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 the gas flow for another two months, and then you can be even tougher. Okay, that's interesting. But uh, a final point then, uh, because you're adding this list, you mentioned this destruction of demand, but but there's also this element of energy efficiency. Yes. So uh, reduced consumption. Yes, uh, uh, that is a long-term trend that is very significant. Yeah. Uh, that could be typically it's between one and two percent every year of, of improvement uh, of energy efficiency. Uh, I don't see just uh, any immediate uh, step up or change uh, this year, but maybe I'm not aware of it. But but I don't see that as a, as a as a short term opportunity. But of course, towards 2030, I think we will see that uh, lot uh, uh, happening on that side because. Well, they're very high prices we have, so it's a good incentive to have more uh, energy efficiency. Okay, uh, so so uh, now, Jonan, you said that, okay, it's it's not easy, it would be uh, expensive, but it's possible, but it would be a bit easier if we could delay or make sure that there will be a Russian flow of gas for just just a few of them, uh, a month or two or three more, because you probably build a bit, maybe you can build a bit storage and you... Uh, uh, so, Jakob, could you say a few words? What's the strategic importance of energy for Russia? And what makes EU important in this context? There are at least uh, three reasons that three reasons that makes um, um, that make um, uh, energy important in the Russian context. Uh, in the first place, Russia, uh, being a northern country, needs a lot of energy to cover its own energy needs. So this is the first reason why energy is important. The second one is that um, Russia, uh, the, the, the energy sector, is the backbone of the Russian uh, economy, representing 20% of GDP on average, 40% uh, of the state. Uh, budget revenue and uh, between 60 and uh, 70 percent of uh, export revenue and then uh, energy is also important because it's uh, it helps Russia build uh, relations with other countries uh, that are uh, importing energy from Russia uh, and this gives Russia a certain leverage because uh, when you depend on someone uh, to cover your energy needs uh, this makes something with the relationship but on the other hand uh, Russia is also so very much dependent on having access to those uh, markets where they uh, export energy because um, Russia needs access to markets because um, Russia produces, uh, roughly speaking, twice, uh, two times more energy than it needs on its domestic market. Uh, so uh, in order to earn money to uh, generate revenue both for the companies and for the state, Russia needs to have access to external energy uh, markets. And uh, here comes uh, the importance of the European Union. Uh, over the past uh, decades, a strong relationship in energy terms was built between uh, Russia, even earlier the Soviet Union and uh, some Western European countries and uh, this is still very much the the reality today uh, approximately between 70 and 80 percent of Russian gas that is uh, going to external markets ends up in um, uh, in the EU market and uh, also more than 50 percent of uh, Russian crude oil is exported to Europe meaning that Europe is still very important uh, from the Russian point of view and um, especially in uh, gas terms it's uh, almost impossible for Russia to redirect those uh, gas flows to other markets due to the lack of existing uh, infrastructure yeah. let's touch upon this latter point because uh, hi historically, Russia has provided gas to Europe, and Europe has been kind of 
has developed a bit of an interdependency. So uh, Russia has relied on Europe as a as a, for buying the gas, and uh, Europeans could rely on Russia for selling the gas. Uh, and this is kind of destiny tied together. And uh, of course, there's been disruptions now and then. But would you say that Russia has used gas and energy supply as a bit of a political weapon? Of course, yeah. because when you sell uh, a commodity to other countries, then you can uh, manipulate the market. For instance, uh, in 2021, Russia cut the uh, supply of gas to one of the existing pipelines, and this resulted in very high uh, prices on the European uh, gas market. And this is a very good example of uh, how Russia can influence uh, gas markets and also position of those who are uh, completely dependent on um, uh, buying uh, Russian gas in order to cover their uh, energy needs. But on the other hand, you mentioned this issue of interdependence. And interdependence is uh, a very interesting concept because uh, on the one hand, when you look at the world uh, to this uh, liberal institutionalist uh, approach, uh, then interdependence is something that should result in lower level of uh, conflict and tension between those uh, parties that are involved in this relationship. But uh, when you look at the world uh, from a kind of realist perspective, which is uh, predominant uh, in Moscow, then being interdependent creates also a lot of tension and uh, possibility for conflict. And we see that in the energy field, uh, both of those approaches have been uh, very much uh, present. Mm. Uh, so uh, Russia said uh, last week it would draw up a mechanism by, actually by today, I think, uh, March the 31st, under which the so-called unfriendly countries uh, would pay for gas in rubles from now on. Most know pay in euros or United US dollars. So why are Russia doing this? Uh, is it to force the Europeans to undermine their own sanctions and restrictions regarding... So the Europeans have to buy rubles in the Russian central bank? Uh, the official Russian version uh, is that uh, dollars and euros cannot be trusted as a, a currency. So they most probably mean that ruble is uh, more worth than uh, dollars and uh, euros, but it is also very clearly a political statement and something that is to somehow force uh, uh, those countries, those countries that are defined as unfriendly, to uh, somehow uh, address the issue by, uh, uh, by by doing something against the sanctions that they have uh, imposed on Russia, because then you will have to deal with the Russian Central Bank, which is put on the sanctions list and so on and so on. But uh, now we know that Russia has decided to withdraw uh, from this uh, from this uh, demand and uh, uh, they have signaled that this may take a longer time because they have most probably looked into those uh, long-term contracts that are signed and those contracts uh, define uh, the currency being euro or dollars. And we, we also need to understand that Russia operates on two uh, parallel European markets. Uh, the long-term contracts where Russia has um, uh, uh, some obligations that are met, but then Russia has almost completely stopped supplying uh, Russian gas to the European spot market, uh, which is uh, a strange uh, situation because when you have uh, very high prices, then you sh should expect that those who are driven only by economic concerns should uh, uh, overflow the market with uh, gas. But this is not this, not definitely the case uh, with Russia today. But but uh, Jakob uh, and also maybe Yara could jump on, your, on on this question. You said that 
for for Russia, Europe is a very important market, and you have the infrastructure, you have the gas flows, some of the energy reserves are also closer to Europe, geographically speaking. Uh, and uh, if if we are looking into a future, not not so distant future, actually by this year or next year, that Europeans will not buy this gas anymore. Is the what is the alternative market for the Russians? Uh, of course, they have these uh, uh, the power of Siberia, some pipelines going to to China. But where can they s- redirect the gas? Is there an infrastructure, and what would it take to build that infrastructure? There are many possible markets that would uh, welcome uh, supplies of Russian gas. But uh, in order to make it, you need uh, infrastructure, and there are two elements of infrastructure that are uh, lacking. The one is that there are no pipelines, uh, existing pipelines. Uh, connecting the gas fields uh, in Western Siberia, where uh, most of the Russian gas is uh, produced, and the Chinese market, for instance. There are some plans to build the so-called Power of Siberia too, but it's going to take a lot of time and uh, cost a lot of money before it's going to be there. So so Russia is somehow stuck with its uh, gas uh, production in Western Siberia, and uh, this gas cannot be easily redirected to other markets. And uh, there is also no market for this gas in Russia itself, because Russia has uh, embarked on the huge project of gasification of Russia, but uh, the the demand on the domestic market is still not there. And on top of that, uh, the domestic market pays much lower prices than the external market, so it would be completely, uh, it would be very difficult for Gazprom to earn money. Uh, According to some historical data, uh, Gazprom started earning money on the domestic market first in 2009, and by that time the situation was uh, as follows. 35% of uh, Russia and gas was exported to the European Union. This 35% generated almost 70% of the revenue of the company. And this is most probably the situation still uh, today. Mm. Can you add to this? uh, Yes. Uh, First, I would say that, of course, this situation is extremely sad for the Russian gas exporters because they have a lot of ambitions for a future uh, with hydrogen to uh, blue hydrogen to Europe. They already had concrete plans to mix. You can mix up to 20% uh, in some places into the stream, uh, gas stream. Uh, so uh, it was a lot of ambitions and huge prospects for a good business, even to add to the green agenda of Europe. Uh, so, uh, I mean, currently, we all of this will be put on hold. So very sad for all these good prospects for business cooperation. So then you can look at other markets. You have what you mentioned, the, the power of Siberia that we think can reach uh, 38 <laughs> BCM since we are have these numbers now uh, by, by 2026. 20, and then you have uh, another pipeline that is also been talked about. Uh, it's called uh, Soyuz Vostok. Uh, that could add another 50 BCM, mm-hmm. but that's towards the end of this decade. Is that also targeted towards uh, to ch- China, the Chinese China. market? Yeah. So the, the sum of this will be almost uh, uh, 90 BCM but still this way. just a and bit in more 10 than years. half of yeah. what they yeah. sell to Europe. Yeah, it is. Right. So uh, Could they convert some of this to LNG and sell it to global market? They have the Amal uh, facilities, uh, of course. Uh, and, and just now we are lacking LNG on the global markets. But uh, this can be turned quite fast also. I think that... Uh, you have a lot of new capacity coming in uh, in in the second part of this decade. 
so, but uh, you said, you know, interesting that uh, some of the Russian energy companies, gas companies, mm. they they had a strategy mm. for uh, rebalancing or positioning themselves for a Europe, greener Europe yeah. to convert this into blue, uh, blue or green, uh, blue hydrogen. Mm. Um, and it's commonly understood that uh, these companies are close to Putin's regime. Uh, is there a possibility that what what would uh, Sachin and others say today to Putin? Yeah. Do you think? Uh, uh, First of all, you know we we have a lot of contacts in 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 Russian gas uh, and oil companies. Very good people, uh, all intellectual people, and all intellectual people they understand what is happening and they're of course against it. They have trouble to actually say it publicly. But you have seen different statements that actually some. I mean, Lukoil's board openly criticized uh, Putin uh, for this. Uh, employees from Rosneft didn't turn up on this uh, big uh, f uh, celebration, etc. So I think even uh, employees... Uh, the sports arena. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, employees in the energy company, they are, of course, suffering and they feel this double bind that they have uh, very exposed to Western ideas and in intellectual uh, ideas and, and uh, information. And they see how wrong this is and how they are destroying their business completely. Of course, they have to behave on, on, on the top management side. Uh, but, but, you know, down in the organization, I know they are extremely sad about this situation. So uh, it's a dilemma for them also to... But they don't have much clout or ex uh, cannot exercise much influence, do you think, on, on the regime? No, let's let's see. But uh, no, I, 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 Jakob, you, maybe you follow I have some statements here. <laughs> I have been looking at those issues, and we also have to understand that although we have a tendency to look at Russia as a kind of unitary actor and so on, then there is also a lot of uh, competition between uh, various actors. For instance, Gazprom has still the monopoly on exporting uh, piped gas from Russia, while uh, Novatec uh, is very much uh, in this LNG uh, business, and they are much more uh, flexible, and they also represent another set of um, kind of oligarchs, because we have to do with uh, two people on the top of the hierarchy, Novatec, uh, Lonit Mikkelson, who is kind of more independent, and then he's also connected to Gennady Timchenko, who is uh, uh, supposed to be a very close friend of Vladimir Putin, and uh, this gives uh, uh, Novatec uh, some opportunities. In fact, when Novatec managed to build this first LNG terminal in Arctic, uh, this was this meant also that the Gazprom monopoly on export of gas was uh, broken, and they have supplied a lot of uh, gas both to the European market and to the Asian market, and they have they have also plans to build another LNG terminal in uh, uh, in the Arctic, but uh, here comes also the issue of uh, technology dependence because uh, they are still very much dependent on technology provided by uh, Total, for instance, and uh, on financing coming from uh, both Chinese but also from Japanese uh, sources. So this is a kind of uh, very complex uh, picture we have uh, to do, and uh, Russia has a huge ambition to become a more uh, important LNG player, but it's also going to depend on uh, their ability to build those terminals. And then we also have to understand that uh, there is another type of dynamics in Russia. Uh, f for the time being, over the past 30 years, uh, Russia has uh, 
to a very large extent trip the economic and technological benefits of the Soviet era. They have developed uh, fields that were discovered during the Soviet era that were relatively easy uh, technologically. Now they have to go to other more demanding uh, areas. The Arctic is one of the areas. Then uh, uh, the, there are projections saying that Russian oil production can in fact decrease because of the lack of the access to those easy uh, fields. So this is also going to something to, that is going to influence the situation in Russia. And um, we sh should also understand that this uh, debate about uh, Europe uh, cutting uh, supplies of gas and oil from Russia is not a new phenomenon because this has been in the uh, game uh, since uh, Europe has been uh, talking about climate change and so on and so on. And uh, this issue of climate change uh, has been until recently strongly undercommunicated in the Russian public uh, uh, debate. We have conducted a study on uh, the Russian debate on climate change and discovered that uh, there is relatively small, low level of attention being paid to this issue in uh, the official Russian documents on uh, uh, strategic issues. So this is also a part of the uh, broader picture. Russia knew that uh, this uh, uh, energy transition is going to happen, uh, has not been preparing too much, and now they have to face a situation when this can uh, uh, happen even uh, quicker than they expected it to happen. Mm. So, okay, so just to recap a bit, so the 150 BCM going to Europe that will be cut off. So, so we talked in the first part of the podcast that Europe could try to replace it. And now we discussed a bit where where the Russians send their 150. And, and what we heard and then is that it's difficult to find alternative markets. Uh, it will take even more time probably for Russia to find that market. Mm. Uh, than for Europe to transition. Yeah. I would actually add that they have also filled up uh, a lot of the storage internally. Yeah. So they cannot take all the gas they are producing. Mm -hmm. So they have probably to shut in wells at a well level, you know, to yeah. basically shock down the wells. And that would then make cause difficulties for reopening them and alter the it, pressure. It could be some uh, technical problems also. So it will really hurt for Russia to stop the gas flowing. Yeah. and. Uh, for their economy also, their dependency of these revenues would be probably even bigger than for Europe then. Okay, so, and then uh, let's move over to, to Norway. Um, so Russia is, of course, a very important provider of, of uh, Europe for energy to Europe, but Norway is almost as important in terms of gas. But, uh, and uh, so, Jaran, could you say, uh, say a few words about so to, so the listeners can kind of understand yes. where is Norway's position in the European energy landscape just as kind yes, of pre, yes. pre pre Ukraine conflict kind of situation yeah. where are we we, what we have been almost as important uh, gas uh, exported to Europe uh, as Russia but Russia was 155 Norway was 115 so very important and of course uh, very trusted <laughs> uh, uh, very popular uh, supplier of gas. And uh, so the question is, I think your next question will be how much can we increase them? Yes, yes, yes. of course. But yeah. maybe just also to, to share, because there's this, if you look at the, the map, you see Norway up there and Europe down there. But the, a normal map doesn't really show the oh, infrastructure that's built. It's much shorter. Built. It's very good infrastructure. It's yeah. partly electrified infrastructure, so it has extremely low emissions. So the European gas uh, is the greenest gas in the world, in meaning that uh, the carbon footprint of the upstream part of this gas is extremely low. It's, it's uh, uh, about five kilo 
uh, versus um, in Russia it's, it's 40 and LNG would be easily be 80. Right. So it's extremely much uh, more climate friendly also. Okay, so uh, and the, uh, the pipelines, they go to the UK, they go to uh, Germany, they go to the Netherlands and yeah. then into the European grid, so to yes. say. Uh, and there's a new pipeline being built, as we speak, uh, going through Denmark over to Poland. Yes. Uh, mm. But uh, so can your can Norway provide more gas? Yes. And as I briefly mentioned, the, the record was in 2017 at 125. So we have proven that the infrastructure could deliver 125. Uh, usually every summer it's much lower prices, you don't need that much gas, and fields are shutting down or, or, or producing much less in the summer. So you have a very clear cyclical pattern, much more production in the winter than in the summer. And so you can produce more in the summer and fill up storage then? Exactly. So if, if you just shut in, uh, if you just uh, take less um, maintenance uh, breaks, and you can even do what they call hot maintenance, meaning doing maintenance even if you have uh, gas flowing at uh, the platform, uh, then you can, uh, and also just uh, try to produce at full speed all the time, then you can actually increase. So looking at that, we, we, we think that if they're going full speed the entire uh, year, they could increase versus last year with between um, 10 and 15, uh, probably up to 15, we think. So, so we think maybe you can, you can manage to deliver a new record of 130 this year. Of course, there are uncertainties here. So, and so, so this is one way to do it. The other, you know, is you always have a trade-off whether you want to produce more oil or more gas because most of the gas in, your, in Norway is actually, or 40%, is re-injected into the oil fields to keep up the pressure in the oil fields. Mm. So if you accept that you have to a little bit less re-injection, you have access to a lot of gas. So the, the, the limitation is the, is the infrastructure. Still. So it's the optimization at the Volvo so, so or yeah. in the production facility. Yeah, so, so you can make more gas, less, uh, slightly less, less oil. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, but uh, just a final point before I let you come in. Uh, you said, you said uh, there's an upper limit then to, the in, to how much gas you can channel in the infrastructure, yeah. in the pipes. Yes. And you said that we have tested it at around 125 yeah but it's possible maybe to step it up a bit more yeah uh, and the pipeline to poland etc that would yeah that's partly connected to the grid so it wouldn't add much more capacity is that correct yeah I, i'm not certain about that honestly but uh, and you have some uh, what we call the line packing etc how high pressure you have uh, and there's uh, also on the receiving side some limitations or opportunities so uh, I wouldn't be too certain about these figures, but but at least we have stated that this additional 15 should be should be possible. The Baltic pipe has the capacity of 10 BCM, uh, but uh, it's not fully booked uh, to put it that way. So there is also some um, uh, possibility there. Then uh, we also have to understand that uh, in some months uh, Melkoya is going to uh, come back, and this so will what add. Is Mel Melkoya is uh, the only Norwegian LNG terminal that uh, can supply between 23 BCM of uh, uh, liquefied gas uh, to. Uh, 
different markets, but most probably to Europe in this uh, situation. So, so this is uh, 130 plus uh, plus would most probably be available from Norway. And Norway is um, uh, perceived as a very safe uh, uh, producer and uh, nice uh, partner, uh, and uh, this has also something much to do, this, this has much to do not with the molecules as such, but with the perception of uh, 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 partnerships because uh, uh, we know that uh, being uh, uh, gas or energy consumer of Russia is bound with some uh, high uh, risks uh, for various political and other reasons, while having a partnership with Norway is uh, completely unproblematic. Norway is also part of the EEA, meaning that uh, Norway plays by the same uh, rules of the game as uh, those uh, uh, major uh, customers of buying Norwegian gas. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the LNG facilities mm. at Melke. That's in the high north yeah. of Norway. And uh, and uh, we should s tell also the listeners that uh, the energy facilities in the high north or the Arctic is not connected to the grid, the pipes, right? So so there you produce the gas and you convert it into LNG and ship it to the global market. Initially, it was designed to ship to the U.S. Mm -hmm. before they mm -hmm. <laughs> discovered the shale, uh, had their shale exactly. revolution. Mm -hmm. And it was then converted a bit. But... Uh, but, but uh, uh, just a few months ago, it's not so long time ago, the EU expressed concerns that Norway should develop oil and gas fields in the Arctic. Do you think this will change now, Jana? I think so. Uh, because we see a clear shift in the, the policy of EU just over the lo last week, where uh, they are g gone from talking not about gas, you know, that, that's, that has only been a bad thing in a way, uh, to talk about uh, long-term cooperation with the U.S. on getting more gas and also how to reduce the methane emissions from the LNG supply chain, etc., meaning a quite practical, pragmatic, uh, uh, with green glasses on, uh, but to look at uh, gas as a transition fuel for another two decades. Mm -hmm. So uh, and certainly, you know, energy security is, is more <laughs> is, is is really on the agenda. So I think they will be more supportive also to, to the development of, the, for example, the Visting field, which is the f furthest north field uh, ever, uh, which, which I think uh, will be sanctioned quite soon, you know, will be fi see final approval. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so Jakob, we had in Norway a discussion going on about what's the future of Norwegian energy production in a political discussion, it wants to some political parties wants to reduce production because we want to speed up the green transition, uh, uh, reduce fossil fuel production. Uh, but uh, but this has also changed the Ukraine crisis. Might change this in also the, in the Norwegian political debate. Not only in Norwegian, I think it's also happening in Europe all over the place because we see that there is uh, a very strong focus on um, uh, getting uh, energy supplies from other sources than Russia for obvious reasons, but there is also a lot of focus on uh, how to manage this energy transition by uh, building an energy system that is also somehow more flexible because when you go for uh, all green, then you also uh, face some technology 
technological uh, challenges, this issue of intermittency and uh, the need to have a sort of backup uh, capacity to, uh, to, to be used when uh, the wind is not blowing and the sun is not uh, uh, shining is also important. So that there's gas has been uh, quite for, for a quite long period viewed as a kind of very convenient uh, transition fuel. Uh, but then there is also the issue of uh, what uh, Germany is going to do with its nuclear capacities. The plan was to shut down all the nuclear facilities uh, in Germany by the end of this year. Maybe this is going to change in light of the crisis in uh, Ukraine and uh, this issue of uh, uh, having uh, backup capacity to somehow balance uh, the, uh, the, 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 the intermittency in the renewable system is also very high on the agenda because you cannot build uh, something that is not uh, completely secure. So, And we may be face some uh, technological uh, uh, new discoveries in terms of uh, storage of energy which will help uh, solve this issue, but for the time being gas is viewed as uh, a very convenient transition fuel. And I think uh, that if we were to look uh, 10, 15, uh, 20 years ahead, uh, the Norwegian gas would most probably be the last one to be uh, removed uh, from the European energy mix for uh, obvious political and uh, security related reasons. Okay, uh, I think we have to uh, get closer to an end. We have discussed uh, the European uh, how uh, Europe is struggling to, to get out of Russian gas. We discussed how Russia sees this and the difficulties and and maybe uh, the difficulties they will have and also may some of the difficulties they might create in this transition and we discussed the role of Norway uh, but let me just end maybe on a maybe on a positive note or I don't know if it will be possible but could I ask the two of you to say did any of you expect this to happen this transition uh, this shock as it is and what would be your best guess gonna uh, one year, two year, three year down the road. What, what would the situation look like? Johan first. Did you expect this or have you have there been any plans for this or are we in completely uncharted territory? No, I, I would say 2022 would, we, we, I at least uh, expected it to be a turning point because uh, of that green uh, technologies were more competitive than fossil. Uh, and the EV is cheaper than the ICE car. This is the first time ha happening. So it was a turning point. But of course, I never expected this invasion to happen. And it's completely accelerating uh, this shift. So it's a turning point that it'll, it's exaggerated or, or accelerated completely. So if, if it will be tough for the next three or four, five or six years for Europe, but uh, somehow this transition next was two, inevitable. I think ne next somehow. one to two years we'll see very high prices. But, you know, the markets are very flexible, very able to, you know, it's a lot of small <laughs> players in this market that are doing a lot of actions now that is not even visible, that will create balance. It will take six to nine to maybe 12 to 18 months to see the result of this. But there, uh, but this will create a new balance in the market. And what you're saying is this: this, this basically will leapfrog a green economy in Europe. I think so. Mm. Jakob. I have been working on Russian uh, foreign and security policy at NUPI since 1995. So uh, the <laughs> fact that Russia has decided to use uh, its military instrument to 
promote and defend and achieve its goals in the near abroad has not come as a huge shock. We have seen Russia doing this in 2008 and in a longer historical perspective, Russia has been eager to use its military instruments. So this, not, this has not come as a shock, but still we have been very much surprised by the fact that Putin decided to go so strongly against Ukraine and this has created a completely new situation and this also reactualized this whole debate about the security of supply that making Europe too much dependent on supplies of gas and oil and other and coal from Russia has not maybe the wisest thing we could do and even in a country that has used this energy cooperation with Russia as a tool in order to make Russia more Europe-friendly in Germany. This has been a shock and the realization of the fact that one needs to look for other sources and for other solutions also in the energy sector. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to Joran Rysta and to Jakub Godzimiske for participating in this very interesting uh, exchange. Uh, thanks for sharing your insights and thoughts. Mm -hmm.